0: Hey, this is Evan Jackson, video production director of New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that today's message will not only challenge, but encourage and inspire you to see God's purpose for you. Enjoy the message. I'm so excited to preach this morning. I'm going to try to get you out. I have a half an hour. I'm going to try to get you out so that you can get over to the picnic on time, go get your casseroles or whatever you made and get over to the picnic on time. But I am this, I am so excited to preach this morning. Lord, thank you so much. For the opportunity that you have given me to divide the word of truth. God, I pray it would be all you and none of me that your word would be uh, evident in what we say and what we think about today. Lord, that through your word and by your spirit, we might glean some golden nuggets today of truth. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters who are here. And God, I pray that uh, you'd use your servant today to bring about what you want them to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in this series, Upside Down Kingdom. And uh, we're in the second week of this series. Ah, thank you, my dear. See, I got lots of people taking care of me. Takes a village, apparently. All right, takes a church. This is week two, and the title of this message is... Upending the big three. Upending the big three. And the big idea of this message is Jesus overcame three right side up temptations before he launched the upside down kingdom. Okay? Jesus overcame three right side up temptations before he launched the upside down kingdom. Open to Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4. And uh, we're going to start right at the beginning of that chapter. So just a little background. Jesus is, um, we're getting past the narrative of his birth and all these types of things. And Jesus is about to start his ministry. He was just baptized by John and the Spirit of God fell on him in the form of a dove and the voice of God said, this is my son whom I'm I'm well pleased and who I'm well pleased. And they said, listen to him. Listen to him. All right? So at that point, Jesus does a bunch of miracles, and he, cat no, it's not what he does. He, goes, he, he takes like a, a, a sabbatical before the ministry even starts. But this is not a fun sabbatical. This is a trial. This is a test. And he goes out into the wilderness. So I want to read this passage with you, and then we're going to break it down. We're going to be, uh, verse 1. Through 11. Here we go. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think that's the biggest understatement in the entire scriptures. I've, I have done like a 20-day fast before. And I, I'm not bragging because I hate fasting. I hate it. It's brutal, I'm not one of those guys like, I love to fast I'm so spiritual i'm like, oh, I gotta fast, I know I need to, okay, and my wife's like, No, no, no fasting because i'm not I'm not a happy man when I can't eat so forty day fast, some people have done it, and I more power to a man there more spiritual than I am, apparently but 40 days of no, nothing to eat, I think you might be a little hungry. Okay? So that's a huge understatement. Verse 3. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, do not test the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Get away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. I think one of the major uh, parts about that is very applicable to our situation is this. It was after 40 days that Jesus was fasting, and then the devil came. See, the devil is a wily guy. He knows when you're at your weakest, that's when he often gets the upper hand on us. He's not going to come in a moment where you're flying high spiritual. He's going to come when you're down and out, and he's going to push you, and he's going to prod you, and he's going to uh, ask you to compromise the things that are of God. So the book we're reading, according to Donald B. Crabill's book, The Upside-Down Kingdom, five key symbols in this temptation story help us unpack its meaning. First off, the devil. He's the perennial threat to holiness. right? Always been, always will be from the very beginning of our Descent. Satan has been in the background pushing the buttons. The desert, where Israel wandered and was tested. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness, just like Israel, and he wanders and he was tested. Some of the same things that Israel dealt with in their uh, their, their, their wandering in the desert is what Jesus deals with: uh, thirst, hunger, these types of things, and God always provided for them. Bread. Is another symbol, the supernatural provision of God, okay? Mountain, the place where God gave the law, where God provides the answers to... See, Satan's trying to give stuff away that he doesn't really own. God does. And the temple, the place that symbolizes the presence of God. So the temptation point to a right-side-up kingdom encompasses three big institutions of that day and also our own day, political, religious, and economic. These are three attacks on the humanity of Christ. Let me explain that for a second. Jesus is the God-man, right? He's 100% God, 100% human. I know that adds up to 200%, but it's one of those mysteries of faith, right? Right? He's everything. He's 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 a human, but so Satan is going after the humanity of Jesus and trying to get his humanity to override his deity. Trying to get him to nullify the purpose for which he came because if Jesus were to be a substitutionary atonement for our sin our sin, he had to be perfect. So if Satan could get his humanity to nullify his deity, then he disrupts the purpose for which Jesus came in the first place. So Satan attacks his humanity. So let's backtrack through these temptations and analyze them in light of three, those three areas. Uh, political, religious, and economic. So the first section we're going to talk about today, because every really great sermon has three points. Right? I mean, every. Three-point sermon, that's every great sermon. Three, right? you know every great sermon has three points. So we're going to go with it. mountain politics. That's the first section, mountain politics. Matthew chapter 4, uh, 8 says this. Again, the devil took him in very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. This was Jesus' chance to be the new Alexander the Great to wield political power throughout the Mediterranean world. The the known world, we should say. Okay? Um, Israel, again, would be supreme and a light and power to all the nations. The pivot of world authority would pivot from Rome to Israel. The messianic hope of the people would be instantaneously realized. So here's the interesting part about it. He's... He's appealing to his humanity so that he would do what humans wanted him to be. He would be and do what humans wanted him to be and to do. You remember, the whole time that Jesus is on this earth, he has a, he's, he's, he's pushing forward the kingdom of God, and it doesn't look, right, it's upside down, it doesn't look like what they want, so much so that he has problems towards the end. That's an understatement, <laughs> all right? Satan is offering Jesus something that is already his. I think that's interesting. Why would Satan offer Jesus something that's already his? I'll explain it. It's, it's appeal to his humanity. Why? Uh, it's already his just with no waiting. How many people don't like to wait? I have a problem with that. I'm a very, I can be an impatient person i know that's hard for you guys to believe so without any waiting this is a big one he can have all these things with no suffering the humanity of jesus we know in the garden what did jesus do his humanity was broken because of the 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 epic nature of what was about to happen and the the suffering he was going to have to go through his humanity came through, so again, he's appealing to his humanity, his his desire of self preservation. No humiliation. I'm just going to give it to him. Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to wait. He doesn't have to suffer. He doesn't have to be humiliated. A complete rule of the world. I think that's what's interesting because if Jesus had given into it, he would have had complete rule of the world but we all know that this world is going to fade away. So he would have complete rule over the world, but that would be it. See, Jesus' scope was far bigger than just this world. Thank God, because we're the ones who are are saved by that. This is a play for Jesus to take the low road off the high mountain, to take the road frequently traveled throughout civilization to build a right-side-up kingdom where the king is on the top of the heap ruling on high rather than humbly serving from below. Back to that graph we showed, the, the emojis graph we showed last week, right? He's giving him the status quo, but he's, letting him, he's, he's offering him the top. All right? This is the example set by every ruler that came before and exemplified by three major rulers of the time. First, Caesar. I mean, he is basically saying, you will be Caesar. Because Caesar ruled the entire world at that point. Um, The Palestine of Jesus' childhood was not a serene countryside, but a hotbed of violent political repression. As a child, Jesus would have seen firsthand witness to what happened to political dissidents. There are stories of Rome lining streets to a given town with crosses holding aloft as examples to those who would dare consider rebellion against Rome. Imagine this you're traveling to a town, and as you near the town, it's not telephone poles you're passing, but bodies on crosses. Because Rome was making an example of that town, somebody in that town. A group in that town was a dissident group, okay? Jesus would have seen this stuff. It's not, children were not saved from this reality. In fact, Rome encouraged children to see the power of Rome young so that they wouldn't ever have any ideas. So Caesar and Rome. Herod, Herod the Great was a puppet king, was an uh, uh, oppressive tyrant who held... A tight reign over the people by hiring foreign soldiers, building fortresses, and orchestrating a network of secret informa- informers. Think of an authoritarian ruler. That was Herod. He was so schizo. The guy was so crazy about his power that he did some like unbelievable things. He was, paranoid. He was so paranoid of losing his power that over his reign he killed two of his ten wives three of his sons, a brother-in-law, and other relatives. Yikes. Augustus, the emperor of Rome, was once quoted saying, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. That's how ruthless this guy was. And this is the, this is the king that Jesus was brought up underneath. In fact, we know he had, to be, he had to flee the area because of Herod, because Herod went in and just butchered the children of Bethlehem. This is, a, this is, a, this is the example of what uh, Satan is offering Jesus. You can have all this stuff, but you're going to have to embrace violence. You're going to have to worship me. Okay? And the last one we want to talk about is Pilate. Pilate had full military ju- uh, judicial and financial authority over Judea. He had five cohorts of 600 men, each under his command. Uh, he... A cohort of three to five hundred was permanently stationed in Jerusalem where their fortress overlooked the temple complex. It was like an intimidation thing. His rule completely based was based in military power and subject to the approval of Rome. If he kept the Pax Romana, he would find favor. If not, he would be recalled and disgraced. He used many strong arms. And politically savvy tactics to keep the quote unquote peace in Jerusalem. The temptation that Jesus refused was not merely an invitation to overthrow the Romans, it was a sincere and uh, it was a, a snare for him to endorse violence, the conventional way to gain power. Because once you have power in a right side up kingdom, in order to maintain it, you have to you have to do certain things. In order to maintain ultimate power in a right-side-up kingdom, you have to rule ultimately. Okay, so Satan is, is giving him that option. On the high mountain, Jesus refused to play the game by the old rules. In the end, his upside-down way is threatened. Excuse me. In the end, after all this, his upside-down kingdom threatened the old kingdom, so much so that he was crucified as king of the Jews. So let's quickly just transition to the, to the second story. So we talked about the political side of it. Let's get to the religious side of it. This is uh, what the author calls temple piety. Matthew 4, 5 through 6 says this, Then the devil took him to the, high, the holy city, had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Um, I think this is interesting because the temple, what, what Satan says is like, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, prove it. Why would Satan ask that question? Because the humanity of Jesus, you know, when somebody says to you, prove it, what is that? Oh, I'll prove it. That's a challenge. You want me to prove it? I'll prove it. Oh, I'll prove it. You, have, you don't know. Wait. You wait. All right? It's like a, a challenge to his, who, his essence of who he is. So, so he takes him to the, the temple, the pinnacle of temple. Now, there's a debate as to where... Uh, Satan actually took him, but this is a model of traditional understanding of where the temple would have been. There is, interestingly enough, a lot of current debate over this, because many contemporary scholars believe that the temple mount that exists here was actually the entirety of Fort Antonia, and that the temple itself existed to the, we'll just say, your left, I don't know what the direction that is, it's north, south, east, west, I'm not sure. But to the, to the left of this model, in the old city of David. Now, if that is true, and they can find some, some compelling archaeological research, or archaeological finds to prove that, you will get your Jewish temple right alongside the Alexa Mosque, but down in old city. And that has to happen before the end times can come. So it's interesting. It's just interesting. But the traditional view is that this is the Temple Mount was um, where the temple stood. Uh, And if it was that way, he would have been taken to the pinnacle of this temple. I like to just leave that that slide up while we talk about this section. That would be great. So the Temple Mount represents 35 acres of religious piety, just like the whole thing. This is where religious elite would rule not by force of arms, but by the force of sacred dogma and rigid religious class systems. Not only was the temple the center of religious life, but it was home to the 70-member Sanhedrin, the Jewish authority in religious, political, and civil matters. Here resided the high priest, the priest of all priests. He wielded power as the president of the Sanhedrin, He was the symbolic head of both faith and the nation. He was subject to strict laws of ceremonial purity. He stood up the top rung of the leader of the ladder of religious status. If you wanted to be right with God, you wanted to be right with God, you must be pure before him and his entire bureaucracy. This was a heavy burden for the people to bear. It just was. The high priest was the ruling authority on Torah. The the first five books of Moses. Through the view of Torah was divided between the political parties, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Levites, and the scribes. You're going to see how this gets super complicated. You have your high priest who is in charge of the Sanhedrin, who is made up of all uh, all these religious political factions who have different interpretations on how you ought to keep the law, and none of it's easy. All right, Between them, there existed a divergent yet highly complex system of law keeping, the, uh, keeping those excluded, uh, if they excluded a majority of regular population from having influence or even being right with God. They put so many rules. I think I've talked to you about it before. There was the, the law, and then The interpretation of the law kind of insulated the core law. Now, the Sanhedrin had a group of teaching. That was, they had the, the, um, Sanhedrin was made up of the Sadducees. The Sadducees had a whole body of teaching around the law that insulated you from breaking the law. The Pharisees had a whole nother one. The scribes interpreted it one way. The Levites were like God's workers and the um it was left. priests. The priests were supposed to carry this stuff. It was just an intense bureaucracy of rules. And if you couldn't keep the rules, you were out. Intense. Many were looking for the Messiah to come in order to rid, uh, to ride his coattails to the top of the new kingdom in the hierarchical structure. So these these Sanhedrin were like, we want the Messiah to come because we know that when he comes, we're going to be his guys. And we're going to rule with him. We see this even among the disciples. The disciples, when they realized, when when they started to get the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, they did the very same thing. One of my favorite sermons I've ever preached was called Mama Thunder. It was a Mother's Day sermon about uh, James and John's mother. They were, they were the sons of thunder, right? So mama comes up to Jesus and is like, hey Jesus, when you come into your glory, when you come when you become ruler, let my son sit in your right and your left hand. And you know she gets a lot of flack for that. But that really should be the heart of every parent. To get their kids so close to Jesus that that they're like right next to him. I, I understand her heart, but her, her, her uh, way of thinking was a little bit off because he thought it was going to be a political thing, a religious just political situation. So they were thinking that we'll ride Jesus we'll ride the Messiah's coattails right into leadership in the kingdom over the entire world. A spectacular arrival from the pinnacle of the temple would Certify beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus was coming, the coming Messiah, and the religious leaders would have been falling all over one another to enthrone him as king and great high priest. They would have been like, oh, falling all over themselves. You know, I'm better, I'm going to throne you better than the other guy. (laughs) I don't know how it would happen, but they would have. uh, Or Jesus could embrace the upside down kingdom and suffer. At their hands, that was his choice. So you can either jump off the Temple Mount, prove that the challenge, prove you are who you say you are, and and and, and you can skip all this stuff. You know, it's a play to his humanity. And I want—I'm going to bring this home in the next five minutes. Um, I'm going to bring this home to understand that that's all that Satan ever does, is he appeals to our humanity instead of our the Holy Spirit's divinity in us. Not we're not divine, but the holy spirit resides in us. Jesus decided to confront their unattainable religious system of exclusion and instead replaced formal religion with compassion and love. Jesus, the upside-down Messiah, was the mobile temple of God's spirit. As the new kingdom dawned, God's spirit vacated the holy of holies in Jerusalem temple and came to abide in the heart of each believer. Look think about that term, that that imagery. Remember, it says that when Jesus died, the temple and the, the, the curtain was rent? Just, just imagine the Spirit of God just blasting through that temple. <clears throat> because now he doesn't live there anymore. He lives in you, lives in me. I just I can just picture the presence of God just like, I can't wait to get out of here. Oh, I'm going to go, I can't wait to be in my people. And as soon as that last breath was taken, boom! Cool thought. Matthew 12, 16 says, something greater than the temple is here. That was Jesus speaking. Jesus rejected pompous political and self-serving, pompous politics and self-serving religion. Last, wilderness bread. Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, again, there's that challenge again, tell these stones to become bread. Now, this is a weird one to me. Like, why is that? So what if he did? Who cares? He divides bread and fish later on? I mean, it's 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 like, go ahead. <laughs> no big deal. I mean, it's not like sacrilegious, doesn't seem... This is a temptation to Jesus' humanity. And I think, it, I think the author of this book really encapsulates this concept of where do we put our where do we put our security in? It doesn't seem like an economic thing, but it's, it's more about what do we put our hopes in? Our, what, sustains, what sustains us? Is it things? Is it what we put into our body? Or is it is it God? Jesus replied. Humans do not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. His response categorically rejects the material's, uh, materials view that life is de- driven and satisfied by sating our appetites. We live in this, uh, guys, come on, this one's big. We live in this culture right now. Where sating our appetites is life. We're just moving from one appetite to the next. He categorically rejects this materialistic view. Red represents the filling of our bellies. It is what we put into our bodies to make our hunger cease. We think that the more we feed it, the more our desires will go away. The problem with with filling this hunger and not learning delayed gratification is that the more we have, the more we hunger for more. There's really no satisfaction to our bodies. We grow fat and lazy and discontent. That way with food, hence the obesity rate of our country, (laughs) I went to the doctor the other day, and they weighed me. I think we'll just move on. Um, I'm like, let's just put it this way. They, they encouraged me to maybe work out a little bit more, maybe eat a little less. But I'm trying, I'm trying, relax. Um, it is also that way with not only our food, but with money. Possessions, power, and pleasure. The more we feed these things, the more ravenous we become. Jesus is saying there's more to life than this life. There's more to life than this life. Think about that for a second. There's more to life than just this life, it's bigger. We need to uh, live, uh, lift our eyes if we want to find fullness in this life. We find meaning and hope and purpose in the Word of God. And interestingly enough, by which Jesus is referring to Himself. We find meaning, purpose, hope in the Word of God, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We find purpose, hope, meaning in the person of Jesus, the living Word of God. There's more to this life than just this life. Jesus not only affirmed the upside-down kingdom concept, but he lived it out by associating with the low class. He didn't just gravitate towards those who are wealthy. In peasant societies rooted in agriculture, ninety percent or more of the people are usually poor. Ninety percent. Most of us in the, in, the, in the West live in some somewhere in this middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class. There's a middle class in these agricultural societies. It's ninety percent of the people live in poverty, some form of poverty, and then ten percent are. The wealthy, that's how that works. See, near the top of the lower class during this time of Jesus' ministry were craftsmen, carpenters, masons, fishermen, and traders. Below that was the majority of farmers. Then under that was the tenant farmers or sharecroppers. After that, day laborers who picked up work wherever they could. And at the bottom were the outcasts peasants forced off their land, wandering vagabonds, beggars, lepers, and prostitutes. And in that list, of all those lower class people, Jesus ministered to them all. He actually, interestingly enough, Jesus was born into an upper lower class. Did you see the, he was like the, best version of the low class in his area and he was born in a stable. Now that's poverty, folks. He's like doing pretty good. His dad's a craftsman, carpenter. He's You know, he's, he's doing pretty good. And he's still incredibly impoverished. Jesus didn't but, but, but then you I love this part of it because he even broke uh, stereotypes at the time. He spoke to women, just like he would to a man. I love that. A a Samaritan woman. Ooh. Samaritans Spoke to her. She's like, why are you talking to me? Don't you know? (laughs) What are you doing? You're a Jew, and I'm a a Samaritan. He's like, He he spoke to Nicodemus. And he spoke truth to Nicodemus. He didn't kowtow to Nicodemus. He spoke truth to him. He was out in the upper class. Jesus is the word of God. This is important. He's the word of God that we look to. Jesus did not deal exclusively with any one of these groups. But he did focus much of his attention on the groups that were marginalized at the bottom of the ladder. Jesus, as the word of God, becomes the bread of life. Right? He is the bread of life. When the values of Jesus' upside-down kingdom become our bread of life, the lure of what the world has to offer loses its grip. You want to you flip the script in your life and not be so focused on this life as the end game, you could embrace the upside-down kingdom that, that Jesus brings in. And then the, the materialism, the, the feeding of our passions and our hungers and our you know all these things start to melt away. Now, the almighty credit card doesn't seem to have so much value to us anymore. We don't need it so much because we're satisfied with what we have. God's mercy begins to move us to give generously of what we have. We start saying, instead of saying, what do I not have? What, what, what do I need? What, I need that, I need that. No, you don't. Instead, it starts to flip the script and say, what do I have that I can bless people with? It just flips it completely when we embrace Jesus' kingdom. This reading of the temptations of Christ shows us how Jesus grappled with the powerful forces of politics, religion, and wealth. It also shows how Satan uses these forces to, uh, to drive a wedge between what is, um, between us, he drives a wedge with these things, and God, and sabotages our God-given potential. This is, what Jesus, this is what Satan is trying to do to Jesus. And this is where I want to bring it home. This is what he always tries to do. He tries to use these tools to sabotage your God-given potential. Think about the potential that Jesus had, what he was going to do. And if Satan could drive a wedge between God's purpose and God's presence in, in Jesus' life, he could sabotage everything that Jesus was going to do. And he does the same things to us. I am a strong believer that every single one of God's children has been chosen and gifted for a purpose. There's potential that exists in every single one of us that if we give it over to God and don't let Satan drive that wedge, amazing, beautiful, powerful things can be done for the kingdom. We have to start believing that first off because doubt is always something that Satan loves to put in on. Oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that important. Or what could God do with me? What could God do with you? Remember that even the most gifted person is just a pile of dust that God breathed into. That's it. They're just dirt. They're a dirt ball. You're a dirt ball. Put that on the internet this week. Pastor, just called us all dirt balls. Yes! There's nothing special about the special. It's all just clay, right? And when we put that clay in the hands of God, he could do amazing. You need to start believing that. Oh, but pastor, you don't know my past. You're right. But God does. I'm telling you right now, he could take that past that you have and use it. That you could do greater things that, than you could have done without that past. He could work all things together for good. Not all things are good, but he can work them all together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. It's an amazing thing. But Satan likes to put that seed of doubt that you're not good enough. Tell, just speak back to him, I know. I know, but it's not about me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Just say, yeah, I know. Get thee behind me, Satan. We can use some King James on you. Get thee behind me. So Satan uses these forces to drive wedges between what is, uh, between our relationship with God. And he sabotages God's given, uh, God-given potential. And finally, it also reminds us that Jesus, the very word of God, was introducing a new, upside-down kingdom. One based on a new source of power, a new temple, and a new type of bread. Him. And I love the way this ends. Matthew 4.17 When all this is over, Jesus says this. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He passed the test. He passed the test. When we pass this test, the kingdom of God comes near to us and through us. But as long as we let Satan drive away using the things of this world to derail us from our God-given potential. There's nothing special. Because the only thing that makes these dirt balls special is the breath of God. The breath of God. Then we become special. Then we become something that can be used. Then we can become something significant. Then we can leave a legacy. Then we can impact the world to the kingdom of God. Kids, kids in this room, listen to me. Listen to your pastor. You, there's an old story that the um, pastor was asked, how many people came to prayer meeting today? And we all know that prayer meetings are always packed. Anyway, he said, <laughs> the pastor said, well, we had, we had five and a half people. Five and a half people. Five and a half people came to a prayer room. Five and a half? What do you mean? Oh, you mean like five adults and a kid, right? I said, no. A family came. Mom brought her five kids. Because the kids had their whole life ahead of them. And the adult only has half left. Five and a half. Kids, listen to your pastor. You got so much potential. Don't let the enemy, don't let Satan put these things in front of your mind as being so important. Because it will drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God and it will derail your God given potential. You have so much potential for the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you, oh, Pastor, I don't want you to do that. It's not going to be fun. It is fun. It's an adventure. I'm so tired of video games and in, uh, social media. Guys, listen, God's got some amazing adventures ahead of you. If you will give yourself over to his new kingdom, and I have to close because Lisa's like, what's going on? But I, I just I just wanted to like you kids, just don't let Satan do it. Parents. Parent. It's kind of in your title. Parent. Guard your kids from this garbage. Sometimes you've got to say, I know it's hard. But you've got to say no. They'll live. They will. They will, they will. they will act like they are dying. They might fall on the floor and grip their chest. With, but they're going to live. Raise a child in the way they should go. I don't know why that turned into child and parenting. I didn't, that was not one of the points. But maybe you need to hear it. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are the word. Made flesh to dwell among us and in us. Lord, I pray that we would be holy temples of your Holy Spirit. That we would look on the needs of others rather than our own passions, desires, and quote-unquote needs. Lord, that we would deal with people from an upside-down leadership structure where we do our very best and become the greatest in the kingdom by helping other people stand on our shoulders and reach their God-given potential. Lord, give us an extra dose of your Spirit's power to resist the devil. Lord, help us to know your word, because in every aspect of your temptations, you fought back with the sword of the Spirit. You said, it is written. Every single time you said it is written. And if we don't know what is written, how are we to fight it? To put a passion in our hearts to know your word. And God, I pray that this church and this people would be all about your kingdom. Lord, we ask you to be with us today as we eat massive amounts of food and spend an entire day doing nothing but enjoying each other's company in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. We'll see you in a little bit.